<clears throat> yeah, much easier this week. We just talk about end times. That's simple. Um, okay, um, I'm actually going to begin this week by reading it to you. Last week it was a bit lengthy, so I didn't do that. Um, but this chapter is not so long, so I'll begin by reading 2 Peter chapter 3. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And by that means of, and by means of, and that by means of these, sorry, literal translations often the English leave a lot to desire for. Um, where was I? The world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this fact, this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for the new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, Since you are waiting for these, be diligent and be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Okay, so this morning we're looking at the final piece of the puzzle. We'll be looking at 1 and 2 Peter, the final chapter of this letter and both of Peter's letters. Um, so just very, very quickly, recap of last week. Remember, we talked about last week of how this is actually quite a difficult little letter with lots of controversial bits and people not really understanding the background. Um, but basically, it's Peter's words, um, Peter's ideas, whether written directly by him just before he died or by somebody else later on. But it's Peter's ideas, it's Peter's words, Peter's teaching. Um, written... To these guys, remember, from, what is it again, the list? Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So these five Roman provinces in what is now Turkey. Um, Essentially, like I said last week, 
This is where Paul and Peter did a lot of their ministry work um, in this region. Um, And these churches are seen to be facing both persecution from the outside and a possible problem of heresies growing up on the inside. So they have problems outside and they have problems inside. They're mostly Gentile Christians, but they know a lot about Jewish stuff um, because of their teaching and because of their up, um, and because of their leaders. A lot of what this letter is about, if you remember, is this idea of passing on tradition, passing on the truth from the apostles to the next generation. Um, that's not just Peter. A lot of them are dying, <laughs> and that truth has to be passed on. And so the letter focuses on where do you get your truth from and also what is the fruit of the truth that you follow. So these, the source and the fruit of the truth is focused on. And this emphasis on godly lives. Like I said, like I said last week, we actually did the application for the whole letter the first time. The first in 1 Peter, 2 Peter 1, because that's the whole point of this letter, is you live godly lives. Um, Whatever the actual interpretation of chapters 1, 2, and 3, the practical application for us is exactly the same, is live godly lives. Um, So that's the main point of this. Um, And that's, as we said last week, very relevant today when we talk about what is truth. Okay, that was a very quick recap. Um, So this is the third chapter. Um, You remember the first chapter... Passing on tradition from the apostles, passing on truth from the apostles, and therefore living godly lives. Second chapter, don't follow the heresies by the false teachers, and you can tell you shouldn't follow them because they live ungodly lives. And this final chapter is about waiting for judgment. And how do you wait for judgment? You live godly lives. <laughs> that's the point of it. So that's, that's the conclusion done already. Whatever I say from now on, the conclusion is, what do we do? Amen. I can finish now. Now, um, so there's this final part, waiting for judgment. Now, first question I suppose we should ask is what judgment? Because we've just looked at in the second chapter, Peter talking about how these false teachers are going to be judged very soon, it seems like. So it might seem on the face of it that Peter is just talking about the same thing. He's carrying on. Um, it could be, you could, you could say it like, Peter is saying, these guys are going to be judged because God has judged them in the past. But some will say, oh, when will he judge them? And da, 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 da. Um, But the terms that Peter uses kind of expands this idea of judgment. He's not just talking about the judgment he's just talked about. He's not just talking about these false teachers that are going to get it. Um, the language, the Old Testament kind of big picture language he uses seems to see that he's actually talking about the judgment in that sense. What we would call the second coming, the final judgment, the end times, eschatology, all those fancy words that we throw about. Um, And four words in particular he uses, or four phrases. Um, The first one is the promise of his coming or the promise of his presence. The second one, day of judgment. Third one, day of the Lord. And the fourth one, day of God. Now, those last three in particular are very much like Old Testament language. They're very similar to phrases you see in the prophets when talking about coming judgment. Um, In particular, 
there's an expression that you see throughout the prophets, the day of Yahweh, or translate the day of the Lord, as it would be in our Bibles. Um, this idea, which begins in Joel and then ex- expanded in other prophetic books, this, this day of the Yahweh is coming, the day of the Lord is coming. Yeah. It seems that the day of the Lord is any time that God kind of breaks into history. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be judgment. Um, the Exodus is the day of the Lord. Um, as is going into the promised land is the day of the Lord. But the fall of Israel is the day of the Lord. The fall of Judah is the day of the Lord. The exile is the day of the Lord. The judgment on the nations is the day of the Lord. But also the return from exile is the day of the Lord. Um, so it's, it's both salvation and judgment. It's any time that God... It's like it's the next stage of God's plan, if you like, when God comes in to judge or God comes in to save. But you also have, going through these passages, the idea that there is going to be the day of the Lord. So you have days of the Lord, but at the end there will be the day of the Lord, the final day of the Lord, the one that actually ends everything, the final act of judgment, and then Therefore, the final act of salvation, too. Um, So it's going to be like, if you like, days, God's judgment in history and God's salvation in history, but also God's salvation at the end of history and God's judgment at the end of history. God judging particular nations in time, God judging all nations at the end of time. So it has this kind of near and fire kind of element to it. And unfortunately, in the midst of all the poetry of the prophets, it's sometimes hard to tell which is which. Um, Are they talking near or are they talking far? But always, there's this call to holiness that's attached to these pronouncements. Um, If you like, there are two messages within the Day of the Lord messages. The first one is to those who are loyal, to those who are following God, following the law, um, loving him, walking his ways. And the message is, stand firm, live in faith. Your salvation, your rescue is coming. But then there's another message. It's a warning to the disobedient Israel, to Israel who are not following the law, who are not following God. And the message is, repent, because judgment is coming. Um, so basically saying, those of you who are living holy lives, carry on. You will be rescued. Those of you who are not living holy lives, stop it. Start living holy lives because judgment is coming. And all the kind of the future predictions attached to the day of the Lord are all to do with that. It's basically saying to the loyal Stand firm, because in the future, I am telling you, you will be rescued. To the disloyal, repent and return to me, because in the future, this will happen to you. So even the prophecy, the prophetic prediction, is actually about the holy or non-holy lives of the people that God is talking to. And the fact that 
a lot of the New Testament writers also use this type of phrases about Jesus. Kind of hints that actually Jesus' coming or Jesus' return is used in the same way as the day of the Lord in the Old Testament. Jesus will judge the nations individually, but he will also judge all nations at the end of time. Um, So it's kind of used in the same way as the day of the Lord. One thing we might ask is actually, what did the early church think about the second coming, about Jesus' return, about the coming of Jesus? What What was going on in their heads? Like, it's different for us because 2,000 years has passed since all of these prophecies. But what was actually happening when they were being given? Because a lot of the promises of Jesus' coming have this word soon attached to them. Um, this meant that there seemed to be this expectation in the early generations of the church that Jesus was coming back very quickly that it wasn't a long-time future thing, that Jesus had just gone, he's going to go to heaven, sort some things out, and then come back for us. (laughs) Well, as he says, go up there, prepare some rooms, (laughs) and then come back down. There was this sense of imminency. It's going to happen soon. Um, There's this, and throughout the messages, you have this idea of being on watch, being ready, being prepared for Jesus to come back. And so for the people being written to, they naturally thought, okay, that means that Jesus is coming back for me pretty soon. Um, And also you have this strange part in the Gospel of John where basically Jesus says about John, what's it got to do with you when he dies? Because they're talking about when people are going to die. And he says, but people kind of misinterpreted Jesus' words to think that actually John would never die. And that actually, Jesus would come back within John's lifetime. Um, which actually, John actually wrote a little edit, edit note in his gospel saying that's not what he meant. <laughs> but people thought that John wasn't going to die. And the fact that you know, he was thrown into boiling oil and survived kind of made people think, well, maybe he's not going to die. <laughs> and so these... The idea of Jesus coming back within the apostles' lifetime was very strong in the early church. But then on the other hand, Christians were dying. And not only Christians were dying, the apostles were dying. Eventually, of course, all of those first generations of the church were going to die, including John. And this meant that the church had to actually adapt its thinking about the second coming. That perhaps it wasn't going to happen straight away in the first few generations of the church. Perhaps we are talking about future generations here. And this meant they had to look back at some of the things that Jesus and the apostles said and actually think, and actually we're forced to do that too, Were they actually meaning their generation? Was something else going on there? When you have the Jesus' promises, I'm going to come soon, is he actually talking about something else? 
Is there something else going on, on there? So you have this kind of, as time went on, you have this conflict between he's going to come back soon, or I'm not so sure, kind of happening within the early church. Uh, I think this kind of makes sense in the way that the actual apostles were using, and Jesus himself, were using the references to his coming in this same way that the prophets talked about in the Old Testament. This idea that it's not just the end that's being talked about, it's all what happens between now and the end, and the end is what's being talked about. In the prophets, you have near-judgment prophecies, something that's going to happen soon, and then the long, the big-picture judgment at the end of time. And so the idea is that if Jesus is now the king of the world, if all authority has been passed from the Father to the Son, which you read about a lot in the New Testament, if he's now the king of the world and the judge of the nations, whenever you see a nation judge, that must be Jesus. In the same way that Yahweh judged the nations in the Old Testament, when a nation is judged now, it's judged by its king. And its king is Jesus. So the idea is that grew that Jesus would judge the nations in history. When a nation fell, it may be because Jesus has done that. But there is this far judgment that Jesus as the king of the world will return at the end and judge all nations. And I think you have kind of examples of this in the New Testament, this near and this far judgment. For example, in Mark chapter 13 or Luke chapter 21, the same topic has been talked about, the focus seems to be on the fall of Jerusalem, the judgment on Jerusalem, which did actually happen within the apostles' lifetime. It was a soon, it was a near judgment. But then you have many references in the New Testament I picked an obvious one there, Revelation 19 and 20, which is definitely far in the future. The idea of Jesus coming down as the word of God on the white horse and judging the nations. So you have these two ideas throughout the New Testament. Jesus will judge near and Jesus will judge far. He will judge soon. He will judge at the end. So that's more of a way of background. But what is Peter talking about? I want to do a quick run-through of what he's actually talking about here. And I might, it might help if I'm on the right page. There we go. The first paragraph, he's talking about how God is both the creator and the judge of the world. He's saying, remember what Jesus said. Remember what the prophet said in the Old Testament. Remember what Jesus and the apostles said in the New Testament about these judgments and about the judgment. Now, people are going to come along and they're going to say, well, I haven't seen it happen yet. This is probably here a reference definitely to the judgment, the final judgment. 
things have carried on like they have since the beginning of creation, where is Jesus? There's two things going on in those statements. One is the obvious one, that these people are doubting that Jesus is going to come back. They're doubting that Jesus is the judge of the whole earth, that God is the judge of the whole earth. The second is actually not so obvious. It's actually a pagan idea which is wrapped up in their statement that basically the world is eternal. There is no beginning. That actually everything is part of the same process. In fact, if you look at some, a lot of the pagan creation stories, gods themselves are a part of creation. They come into being as a part of creation. Um, actually, they, in most of them, they come out of water. The gods are created, I don't know what, they create themselves somehow <laughs> within and come out of the water, and then they do the creating of the world. So Peter's response to this is answering both of those questions, both the doubting that Jesus is going to come back, but also how the actual reality is different. He talks about, well, actually, the heavens existed before the earth. So where God lived was an existence before the world was. So God was before the world was. He formed the earth from water by his word. He separated the water by his word, which means he was actually separate from it. He wasn't a part of it. God wasn't created in the water. He was outside of the water, ordering these things to be happened. And he existed before them. And then he used those same waters to judge the earth in the flood. What, G- Paul, what Peter is... So tempting to say Paul whenever you talk about these things. What Peter is saying is that God existed before and he's separate and he's sovereign over it. He's not a part of it. He's above it. He created it. He's not a part of the process. He made the process. The earth was both formed and drowned by his word, by his command. And by the same word, the heavens and the earth are stored up for fire at the end. God is sovereign. He's both the creator and the judge. It's his world. Therefore, he can judge it if he wishes. And he's not a part of the process since the beginning. He is the beginning. He started it. He's judged in the past. Therefore, he will in the future. Then he deals with the other part of that thing is time. It hasn't happened yet. All this has gone on. Well, his point is that God and time are different too. If God is not a part of the process, if he begins the process, that means he's not a part of time either. The Lord, with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is a one day. Peter's not being exact there. He's actually just using imagery to show that God and time have a different relationship than we have with time. We are subject to time, but time is subject to God. It's a very different relationship. He started it. He's separate from it. Therefore, the way he perceives it is going to be very, very different to us. So what is a long time to us is not a long time to God. 
I suppose in the same way, what is soon to us is not soon to God either, because he just doesn't look at it the same way. So it's not like he's slow. He's not like he hasn't got round to it yet because he's too busy doing other things or he's slow. Actually, it's because he perceives time very different than we do. And if there is any delay, it's a delay for a particular purpose. And the delay is that he doesn't want to kill everybody. The delay is he wants to give everybody a chance to repent, to live those holy lives. And when he does come, no one's going to know. It'll come like a thief. No one will know. Which is odd, I think, because the New Testament says that many, many times, yet we devote so much time trying to figure out when. But then you get this idea again, the heavens and the earth will be burned and exposed. More on that in a second. Then Peter goes back to the main point, the application, the living godly lives. What do you do when you wait for all this to happen? How should you live as you wait? You wait living a holy life, living a godly life. It says, waiting and hastening the day. That's one of hastening there. I don't know what it says in your Bibles, but it's one of those very difficult to translate Greek words. Probably it should mean eagerly awaiting the end. The heavens will pass away. The heavenly bodies will burn and melt. Again, you have this burning idea. Three times this comes up in this chapter. The idea of the heavens and the earth burning with fire at the end. Now, the odd thing is there that the Old Testament doesn't mention this at all. In any of the, old, in the end time prophecies in the Old Testament, there's no mention of fire and burning. It's actually a Jewish idea that came up in between the Testaments. Particularly from a couple of books... Um, One of them was called The Life of Adam and Eve, and the other one was called Tu Baruch. And it's a Jewish idea that God judges the earth twice, once with water and once with fire. Um, But it's not from the Old Testament. It's actually a Jewish interpretation that's coming later on. But by the time of Peter's time, it's such a big part of Jewish understanding, like those things we talked about last week, that he naturally says it whilst talking about the end. He then says, according to his promise, we are waiting for the new heavens and the new earth. So the focus here shifts from the actual judgment part of this to the good part of this. That what we are promised, what we are actually waiting for. So my title is a bit misleading. We're not waiting for judgment. because We're waiting for the other part. The new heavens and new earth. Again, This is using pictures from the Old Testament, from the prophets. Isaiah, you have the new heaven and the new earth at the end of Isaiah. In Ezekiel, you have the idea of the new Jerusalem at the end. And in Revelation, John takes all these ideas, puts them together at the end, and you have the new heaven and the new earth becoming as one, and the new Jerusalem is where we live with God forever. And his final point is, therefore, as you wait, grow in Christ. Be more like him. Whilst waiting, be diligent, without spot or blemish, and be at peace. 
remembering that the weight is good. The weight is good because the weight means you are going to be saved and more people will be saved. Just like Paul has already told you in his letters that the ignorant twist to their destruction like they do with the rest of the scriptures. And this is why you have one of the weirdest part of this letter is that Peter seems to say that people already think Paul is writing bits of the Bible. He compares Paul's letters um, to scripture. Um, If you want to know what those letters might be, you can maybe work out um, two of the provinces that Peter is writing to is Galatia and Asia. Paul has written a letter to the Galatian churches, and he's written a number of churches, letters to churches in Asia. Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, 1 Timothy are all written to church, these churches. Um, he's also spent time with Mark in Rome. Mark was with Paul when a lot of these letters were written, so he knows about him through Mark. Um, also, because he's in Rome, he's probably aware of Romans too. This is a couple of years after the, that letter was written to those churches. And he co-wrote his first letter with Sal- Salvinus or Silas, who also co-wrote 1 and 2 Thessalonians with Paul. So there's a lot of connections between these two men <laughs> in terms of writing. So he may have known about 1 and 2 Thessalonians, Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, 1 Timothy, and Romans. Um, maybe those are the ones he's talking to <laughs> in reference here. That has got nothing to do with this. It's just a piece of trivia for you. But the point he's making is that I've told you and Paul's told you. You know all these things. You know this beforehand. You know what the truth is. You know how to live holy lives Therefore, don't get pulled away by these false teachers. Don't get pulled away by anything else. But grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus, Lord, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul, Peter and Paul have told them this. Okay. Oh, running out of time. So, application. As I've constantly repeated, we've already done the application. How do we apply this letter? Thank you. Live godly lives. Um, but as I was looking through this, I thought, I think one thing I, can, I want to focus on also as we end is how do we relate to end time things? How do we think about the day of judgment, the day of the Lord, Jesus is coming, these type of things? Because remember, there's these two messages attached to it. To the loyal, it's stand firm, live in faith, live holy lives. To disobedient, it's repent and return to God. We, because judgment's coming. What we tend to do, I think, when looking about the end time stuff, is focus almost entirely on the second. The judgment, the disaster, the horror stuff. You know, for most people's mind, end times eschatology is scary. People read Revelation and are scared at the end. I always say, if, people, if you read Revelation and are scared, two things have happened. 
one or two things have happened. First is, you've read it completely wrong. And two, you're in badly need of repentance. Um, because it's not meant to be scary. And even now, when we talk about the word apocalyptic, which simply means to reveal something, it means disaster. <laughs> we have ap- apocalyptic movies. Um, it means horror. It means terrible things. Where in the New Testament, it just means to reveal something of Jesus, really. This is prophecy, and Paul points out that the role of prophecy is to build up, encourage, and console or comfort the church. So that means that actually, end times teaching, what it should do is comfort us. It should bring us hope. It should encourage us and build us up. Yet, we tend to make it scary. And of course, as I've said, we're not the only ones who've done this. The Jews have done this too, because they took the promises of the Old Testament and then added all this fire and melting and dissolving to it. (laughs) They made it scarier. But the point is, it should bring hope. It should build you up and encourage you. And I think how we wait for Jesus' return, looking at this letter, thinking about all these things, these three things um, come to mind. That we live in faith, we live in holiness, but we live in hope too. That's what it should inspire. Living in faith, Peter's written about the prophecies that the the prophets have given, the commandments of Jesus that have been passed on through um, the disciples, all these things that we have from the word that has been given to us, these promises from God. God has promised our salvation, our resurrection. He's promised the new heavens and the new earth. So how do we live whilst waiting? We live in faith that he's going to do what he promised. That's what faith is, living, knowing that God will do what he promised us, believing in him, trusting him, that he will give us these things. You know, we have faith that God will do what he promised. And that's how it began with Abraham. Abraham was reckoned righteous because he believed God when God promised him the impossible. And it's the same for us. We live in faith when we believe that God will do these great things for us. We live in holiness, as we've talked about all the way through this letter. To be blameless when he comes, Peter writes in 1 Peter. In this chapter, he talks about found by him without spot or blemish. The day of Yahweh was always this call to holiness, to be different than everyone else. That's what holy means, really. Holy means to be set apart. It basically means if you're holy, you're different. God is holy because he's different than anything else out there. And we are meant to be different, holy, like him. To be loyal to But not just to be loyal to our king, but to live like our king. Whilst we wait for Jesus, we live lives like him. Um, This came to me as I was writing this. We are Jesus to the world until Jesus comes to the world himself. Until he comes to the world, we do. By living like him, by being his body on earth 
by living these wholly different lives like our king. But above all, I think we live in hope. I mean, that's why these type of teachings shouldn't scare us, but actually should give us great hope. That's their purpose. Peter writes of the promise of the new heavens and the new earth. This is our hope. The hope we have, the hope of Christianity, is, this, is the new creation. It's resurrection and all that it means. We live in the hope that even though we die, we will live again. But not just us. It's not us that are res- only resurrected. It's the earth and the heavens itself. It's this idea of everything is made new. That in the next life, in that life, that resurrected life, the eternal life, all of those pain, all of those miseries that we know in this life will be gone. But not only that, as, you, as, we, as we look at kind of all of these end times messages together, and this is why in fact I love the way the Bible ends as it does. It brings all of these messages together in Revelation. And in the end of Revelation, not only do you get a new earth and a new heaven, they actually become one thing. Um, heaven and earth become one. God comes home. I mean, that's the bigger picture of when Jesus comes home. It's not just the second coming of Jesus to judge the nations. It's the beginning of the process when God actually comes home and lives with his people forever. In fact, the phrase in, Re- in Revelation actually is, I will tabernacle with them. It's like the picture is that I'm God, just like in the Israelites, is going to set up his tent in the middle of our tents in a big camping trip. It's that he is going to dwell with us forever as heaven and earth become one as it was always meant to be. So to end, I want to read not to Peter, but what is possibly my favorite bit of the Bible. Um, In this idea that these things are not scary, Revelation for me is one of my favorite books because it's the least scariest book in the Bible, because it's the most hopeful book in the Bible. And it's my actually, my go-to devotional book. Like if, 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 I am, if I'm ever reading the Bible in worship, like nine times out of ten, it's going to be revelation because of this sense of hope, this sense of worship, and this ultimate sense of Jesus' victory and how much I can trust him. So I just want to read you this part. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more. For the former things have passed away. 
And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. That's what we're waiting for. That's the hope that we have in our hearts. So whenever you read anything like 2 Peter chapter 3, have that in your mind. It's not scary. It's not apocalyptic in the modern sense of the word. It's apocalyptic in the ancient sense of the world. Is It's revealing who Jesus is. It's revealing our hope. It's revealing our destiny, what we have to look forward to. And, and of course, the great, the great hope is, this is why these type of things are often using funeral services. It's the great hope is it's not just us. It's those who have traveled with us. Um, those who are no longer with us. Not just now, but over thousands of years of history. All of those who have remained loyal to their king will all be together sharing that hope, that destiny, that life, and all those tears will be wiped away. Amen. Lord, we thank you. Sometimes it's good just to stop and actually think what you've promised us. Um, when life is hard here, when life is sorrowful, when life is tragic, to look and stop and remember what you have promised us in your word and through your son, that you will one day wipe away all of those tears. We will one day be reunited with those that we love. And one day we will be together with you for eternity. Where you will wipe away those tears and you would dwell with us forever. In your name we pray. Amen.